Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through, through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So the church has enemies. The church has enemies. There are enemies that afflict the church from outside the church. These are not the false teachers or Judaizers or Pharisees, but they are worldlings and unbelievers and pagans. They do not acknowledge God except in their hatred of him. Often, though, enemies are from within the church itself. The Pharisees uh, were the leaders of the church, uh, and they liked, to, they liked the seats of honor within the church. They are, above all else, though, hypocrites who teach one thing and live a different thing. And you also know about the Pharisees from the testimony of the Gospels that they loved money and considered the church a good source to to get much of it. They were opposed to the gospel even while coming from within the church. Right Throughout his letters to Timothy, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with false teachers, teachers who cast off the good deposit and, and uh, like to tickle ears for the, for the sake of sordid gain. Right? They tickle ears to make money so they can spend them on their pleasures. Right? That's false teachers. These false teachers profess faith but lack understanding and lack a regenerate heart. They teach their own ideas, not the gospel, not the good deposit. Alexander the coppersmith. Who was he? Was he a pagan or a professing Christian? What was his story? What what did he do that harmed the apostle Paul? Well, we're, we're not completely sure, but there are some indications elsewhere in scripture. First, the apostle Paul names Alexander in his first letter to Timothy, in the first chapter. So here, Alexander's named in 1 Timothy 1, and the last chapter is 2 Timothy. I mean, that, that stands out to me as something that Paul wanted to mention first and last, was, the, was to watch out for this man, Alexander. And so in the very first chapter, 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20, he writes, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have shipwrecked and suffered shipwreck, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So that's the Alexander that he's being warned about again at the end of this letter. He was, it appears that Alexander the coppersmith had been, had professed faith at some point, but then after professing, rejected the faith and a good conscience, and subsequently became a scourge to the church, a blasphemer. So from professing professing faith, he became someone who used his mouth to mock the things of God, to mock God himself. It got to the point where it seems that he was excommunicated from the church because Paul says that he was handed over to Satan, and that's, that's the same kind of language that he uses in 1 Corinthians speaking about the man who committed incest, that he would be handed over to Satan. And so... From the, and from the time of his excommunication, this Alexander, from the time of his excommunication, you know what Alexander became? Someone who lived to do harm to the Apostle Paul. That's what he became. He became somebody who just lived to do harm to the church and to do harm to the Apostle Paul. This is often the case after church discipline has been exercised by elders. It's not always the case, and certainly it's not what's shot for. Many times, discipline leads to repentance. But other times, the discipline of the Lord is rejected, and the ones who are disciplined begin to live to get back at the elders. Right? They begin to gossip and slander the church and her elders and her pastors, and when gossip and slander is spread... Other weak-willed pastors take up the cause of the disciplined and begin in their own way to participate in gossip and slander, sometimes overtly. That's the cancer of gossip and slander. That's the cancer of blaspheming. Those who buy or those who believe gossip are made to think that they are champions of righteousness when they defend the slanderer. Right? In fact, they are adding sin to sin. Right? If, you accept slan- if you accept slander and then defend the one who's slandering, you've become a slanderer yourself. Alexander was the kind of man who, having been excommunicated from the church, determined that he would harm the Apostle Paul. Calvin says of, uh, John Calvin says of Alexander, He made profession of some zeal in advancing the reign of Christ, against which he afterwards carried on open war. No class of enemies is more dangerous or more envenomed than this. Right? The ones who professed and then declare open war after rejecting. Right? He says they're envenomed like a a deadly snake. And what was the harm? It was likely that Alexander went around undermining the teaching of the apostle. If the apostle had been attacked physically, he probably would have had more patience with Alexander, right? Because it seems like Paul went through an awful lot of physical suffering, right? He probably would have had more more patience. But because he was leading people, leading sheep astray, the apostle expresses an imprecation, a curse, against Alexander. And after saying that Alexander did him much harm, Paul says, the Lord will repay him for his deeds. 
Do you realize how solemn that statement is? The Lord will repay him for his evil deeds. Those deeds were evil. And the Lord will bring his judgment down upon Alexander. That is Paul, the Apostle Paul, asking God to bring judgment down upon that man. Is that the kind of confident assertion proper from the Apostle? Or is it sub-Christian for him to make that kind of imprecation? Didn't Jesus tell us that we were to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Aren't we to forgive those who sin against us 70 times, seven times? Indeed, Jesus did tell us those things. He did, and that is truth, and we must live that. But that does not mean Paul is without warrant in calling for curses upon an open enemy who had proved himself a vile blasphemer and hater of God. Now look, look ahead in the passage. Look what the apostle does with those who abandoned him. Does he call upon God to judge them? No, Paul writes, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. When the apostle, and, and it's very, I mean, the, the parallels here, if you think about this, is very interesting. I mean, here when it's himself, right? Everybody abandoned me. Here when it's himself and his ego could have been really busted, he says, forgive them. But when Alexander the coppersmith is blaspheming God and opposing the gospel, that's when Paul says, may his evil deeds come down upon his head. Notice the difference there. When the gospel is at stake, Paul is zealous in the right way. And when his own ego or his own feelings are at stake, he's soft. Right. So when the apostle Paul was arrested, nobody came to his defense. They deserted him. I mean, wouldn't that make you angry? Wouldn't that make you angry? Wouldn't that make you bitter? Wouldn't that make you uh, angry at God? Wouldn't that make you even almost blaspheme God? Wouldn't that make you want to call down curses on those, those, uh, those friends, so-called friends, right? There's nothing worse than kicking a man when he is down, and that's what all those people did. Paul is under arrest, and they abandoned him at his first defense. But in this case, what was the Apostle Paul's response? May it not be counted against them. With Alexander, may it be, accounted, may it be counted against him. With those who abandoned him, may it not be counted against them. Calvin works through this conundrum, and, and I want to share a portion of this, his commentary with you because it's so helpful what he writes. But listen to this. This is John Calvin. And this is also the reason of the stern imprecation into which he breaks out, that the Lord may reward him according to his works. A little afterwards, when he complains that all had forsaken him, He does not call down the vengeance of God on them, but on the contrary, appears as their intercessor, pleading that they may obtain pardon, so mild and so merciful to all others. How comes it that he shows himself so harsh towards this individual Alexander? The reason is this, because those who had fallen through fear and weakness, he desires that the Lord would forgive them. For in this manner we ought to have compassion on the weakness of brethren. 
But because this man rose against God with malice and sacrilegious hardihood and openly attacked known truth, such impiety had no claim to compassion. So those who sin in weakness, we show compassion to, but those who arise in pride, the imprecations of God are necessary. Those who fall because of weakness deserve our compassion. Those who rise up against God and openly attack the truth, they do not deserve compassion. What do they deserve? They deserve God's judgment and the, the opposition of the shepherds of the flock. I'm continually concerned that pastors in the church today think that the church and her people have no enemies. Or if they do, it has to be Satan himself that's the one sole enemy. Right? But, but what of false teachers like the revoicers right, who are teaching a church that one may be gay and Christian? The scripture says that the effeminate and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. How much clearer can scripture be? Right? Should we dialogue with them? Should we f- allow a different point of view to be stood up next to a different, another different point of view? Should we be collegial? Should we be collegial as the sheep are torn apart? No, we should not be collegial. To oppose the clear teaching of God is to blaspheme God and destroy souls, right? To claim two identities is to be like a man who thinks it's possible to serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both gay and Christian. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And so the zeal of the Apostle Paul against those who rise up against God and afflict his church is commendable. It is also necessary, right? False humility by church elders is going to leave a generation of the church open to the attack of the enemy. That's what it will lead to. Blood will be on our hands as we don't sound a warning against the onslaught of the enemy. Now, John Calvin goes on. He says this. We must not imagine, therefore, that Paul was moved by excessive warmth of temper when he broke out into this imprecation. For it was from the Spirit of God and through a well-regulated zeal that he wished eternal perdition to Alexander and mercy to the others seeing that it is by the guidance of the Spirit that Paul pronounces a heavenly judgment from on high, we may infer from this passage how dear to God is his truth for attacking that which he punishes so severely. Especially it ought to be observed how detestable a crime it is to fight with deliberate malice against the true religion. Are we somehow, are we somehow in this age of enlightenment suddenly without the kind of enemies that deserve imprecations rather than dialogue? Why is everything today about dialogue? Because we think we have no enemies. I mean, I'm post-millennial, but I'm not that post-millennial. Those who wish pastors and teachers to dialogue have abandoned their post in protecting the sheep, only thinking about their own positions in their their pastor's clubhouse, shepherding 
The feeding and protecting of sheep requires hard judgments, clear warnings, right? And, and, and quick identifications of dangers that are coming. Again, back to Calvin. Calvin now gives us some warnings about imprecations, right? So my trouble is today, I mean, we sang an imprecation in Psalm 3. We sang an imprecation in Psalm 3. And uh, it's so awkward for us because we're not used to having the kind of faith that, that denounces the enemies of God. But it's faithfulness and it's godliness. Yes, it's hard. And yes, our hearts can be in the wrong place. And yes, we can allow sort of personal vengeance to come into play when we're announcing um, imprecations. But the fact of the matter is, is what disgusts me today and what fills me with fear is that pastors don't believe the church has enemies. Or if there are enemies, that we should, we should Matthew 18 our enemies. Matthew 18 is not for our enemies. It's for our brothers. Right? We don't go to them in dialogue first. We, we announce imprecations. We protect the sheep. And that's why the imprecations must be announced is because the sheep will hear and will follow false teaching and make shipwreck of their souls. And pastors think that they can... They can go behind closed doors and meet with enemies and somehow come out of it having shaped a denomination. It's absolutely ridiculous and a forsaking of their ordination vows. Again, back to Calvin. Calvin now gives us some warnings about imprecations, as is necessary. But lest any person by falsely imitating the apostle should rashly utter similar imprecations, there are three things here we must observe. First, let us not avenge the injuries done to ourselves, lest self-love and a regard to our private advantage should move us violently, as frequently happens. So things that happen to you don't get out of sorts. That's exactly what Paul does in this passage. Those who abandon him, God have mercy on them. Secondly, while we maintain the glory of God, let us not mingle with it our own passions, which always disturb good order. Right? Our emotions and passions can get in the way. Thirdly, let us not pronounce sentence against every person without discrimination. Right? You can't just cast imprecations out at every single person, right? but only against reprobates, he says, who by their impiety give, it ev- give evidence that such is their true character. Unless our wishes will agree with God's own judgment, otherwise there is, no, there is ground to fear that the same replay may be made to us that Christ made to disciples who thundered indiscriminately against all who did not comply with their views. You, you know, when, when the apostles want to call down fire, he's referring to. And Jesus says, you, you know not what spirit you are of. And they thought that they had Elijah as their supporter who prayed to the Lord in the same manner. But because they differed widely from the spirit of Elijah, the imitation was absurd. It is therefore necessary, listen to this, it is therefore necessary that the Lord should reveal his judgment before we burst forth into such imprecations. Right? 
God's got to show forth his judgment. He's got to make it obvious. Alexander the coppersmith was blaspheming. His judgment was shown by the Lord. The imprecations were therefore clear. You know, somebody wrecks you, uh, uh, pushes you off the road on a bike, may not be the time to start shouting the imprecations, right? Um, The Lord's judgment has not been revealed. Calvin says, It is therefore necessary that the Lord should reveal his judgment before we burst forth into such imprecations and wish that by his Spirit he should restrain and guide our zeal. And whenever we call to our remembrance the vehemence of Paul against a single individual, let us also recollect his amazing meekness towards those who had so basely forsaken him, that we may learn by his example to have compassion on the weakness of our brethren. So there's a proper context for imprecations. Alexander was written down in Scripture as an example of one against whom Timothy was to be very careful, and Paul was willing to call down imprecations upon. As to Calvin's third point, that the Lord must reveal his judgment before he bursts forth into imprecations, how, how is that judgment revealed? When, the, when that man teaches what is openly contrary to the gospel... That's when God's judgment is revealed, when what they teach opposes the gospel. When that man blasphemes by, by contradicting God's inerrant word. Have, have, okay, have the revoicers been revealed by God as blasphemers? Have they? Yes. Yes, they have. But very few in our denomination are willing to call anyone an enemy. Right? And the sheep are left to fend for themselves and many are being destroyed. I had a pastor call me this past week. Good guy. We've talked together many times. PCA pastor. And right now, there's, there are a number of pastors trying to file a, a complaint or charges against Memorial PCA in... Um, in St. Louis, where this conference that, that was promoting gay Christianity in the PCA was, was held. And, and he called me up and he said, you know, I'm, I'm recruiting signatories for this. He called me up and he said, you know what, I, I'll sign, but I don't think you should be the one who is the primary signer. And I said, well, why? Why don't you think? Well, because, you know, you wrote articles on Warhorn. And, you know, I I just stopped and I said, Brother, brother, if it weren't for Warhorn, Revoice would have blown over. Right? We sounded the alarm before it even happened. We did it out in the open. We didn't try to do it behind closed doors and, and, and shaking hands and dialoguing. We did it out in the open. What we wrote was true. There's nothing of it we would retract. And now... You don't want to associate with me because I'm somehow toxic? Uh, And he eventually signed it, and I called him up later and had a longer conversation with him and just told him all the things that I just said. And, And he was okay with it. But then, you know, then later in the week, a picture pops up on Facebook from the Gospel Reformation Network. 
And the Gospel Reformation Network is the conservatives of the PCA, and they were meeting with all the liberal pastors over bourbon and wine in Nashville and posting a picture about what happy fellowship they had. Right? These are the men who had blurbs on the Revoice website supporting the ministry, and these guys are all meeting together. Right? And, and, and I learn... And I learned there that they're discussing the future of the denomination. Of course, what else would they be talking about? The National Partnership Faction and the Gospel Reformation Faction and their leaders are getting together in a non-ecclesiastical setting to determine the course of the denomination. Right? And, and And I say to myself, the liberals are our enemies. Why would you get together and sip on bourbon with them? Why would you get together with pastors and sip on bourbon anyway? That's not a statement about bourbon. That's a statement about alcohol. You know, I, I just... And, 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 and I, I had asked a few of the men who are in that picture to sign the document, the, the ecclesiastical formal document that's going to go... And they, they responded to me that, no, 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 I can't do that because you're toxic. You're toxic. Why? Toxic because we've called out our enemies? Toxic because we've, we've called out Revoice? Toxic because we've written out in the open, not behind closed doors where we can shake hands and fellowship, but out in the open where everybody can see it, we've tried to protect the sheep and warn the sheep and do these things, and now I'm somebody in the PCA who can't be associated with. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's depressing is what it is. It's thoroughly depressing because who's going to suffer? Those who are being misled by false teachers, and that's the sheep, right? Pastors just want to work things out so they can keep their denominational organizations together and keep the house a big tent and and have position, and I wish we cared about the sheep. I wish we cared about the people in the pews who, who are going to take in false teaching, but we don't. You know, no one's willing to call out Alexander. No one's willing to do this. The revoicers are Alexander the coppersmith. We called them out. And now the conservatives hate us for it. I don't even know what to say. This is our denomination. It's a denomination that is only willing to oppose nobody. So why does my blood pressure rise when it comes to this? Because I think one of the major failings of the church today is our inability to identify and oppose the enemies of the gospel. Men no longer are willing to fight and perhaps don't know how to fight, right? How many of you suffered under unbiblical teachings in the churches you grew up in or attended for years? Are there consequences from that bad teaching? Right? Are there consequences from that false training? Has it led to sins that have afflicted you for years? Or sins in your families that have, have been an affliction for years? In many cases, I bet the answer here is yes. Right? And I can't get zealous about teaching in the church that will lead to, to um, people making shipwreck of their faith. 
I can't speak of, of modern-day Alexanders, you know, unless it's like an easy shot like Joel Osteen. I mean, reformed guys, they pick on Joel Osteen because he's such a... But the poor guy, he's an idiot. But he's harmless. He's harmless. He can be easily ignored. But when revoicers with PhDs come into a PCA church and twist scriptures, it's a wicked enemy and very difficult. Um, so easy targets reform men go after, but the targets that take courage, the targets where there may be real damage, they don't. Alexander the coppersmith was going to do great harm. And Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you better watch out for this man and God damn him. Reflecting on the fact that all, all of his friends abandoned him when he made his first defense, Paul goes on to rejoice in the fact that though every man abandoned him, the Lord stood by him. Right? Every man had abandoned him, but he was content just having the Lord stand by him and strengthen him. He writes, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's just like Paul's like, ah, forget it all. I've got the Lord. Right? That's faith, is it not? That's faith. When everybody flees from you, considers you toxic to the cause, considers that you are too outspoken or too harsh or whatever the Apostle Paul was considered by others, um, in that context, to stand firm, that is very difficult. Our Lord saw all the disciples flee from him when he was crucified and even when he experienced the the, the displeasure of his father, and yet when finished, commends his spirit into the father's hands. Right There are times when, like the prophet Elijah, we'll, we will be one of the few who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. There will be times when we, like the prophet Jeremiah, will be thrown into the well to die uh, like the officials of the church did to Jeremiah. There will be times when we are like the apostle Paul it will be so toxic as faithful Christians that other Christians will not want to associate with us. What then? Will we trust God and know his smile, or will we misinterpret the displeasure we receive from men as the displeasure of God? Those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And what did the Apostle Paul do when all had forsaken him and the Lord strengthened him? He spoke. That through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. God rescued him from the lion's mouth, he says. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, so we don't think that this is a literal lion's mouth. They wouldn't have thrown a Roman citizen into the, the amphitheater, the Colosseum. Um, but I think it is a reference to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, where the psalmist writes, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. 
from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. So the Apostle Paul was saved from the emperor and his ability to execute him. He was rescued, in a sense, from the lion's mouth. And he's recalling that psalm. And if I remember it correctly, Psalm 22, is that not the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that is Jesus' cry to his father in the midst of his heaviest persecution. And then finally, the apostle reflects on the rescue the Lord gave him from the emperor. God, Paul's salvation, his powerful father, the one who who calls him his beloved, will rescue him from every evil deed and will bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom.